Section 42 of The Golden Web by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 2, Chapter 21. All as it should be. There was one person in London who knew Dean's whereabouts, and from him there came no word. To Dean himself there seemed something unreal about the long hours which he spent in solitude wandering along the seafront, following the sands left by the receding tide, himself a lonely figure on the great gray plain. A storm of rain once blew in from the sea, but mostly the day was still and colorless. To Dean, after the long hours in the crowded courts, his director's meetings, his self-imposed mask of ease and confidence, the relief of this absolute solitude was immeasurable. It was just the season of the year when nature and those who minister to her seem alike to sleep. It was too early for any thought of spring. The storms of autumn lay behind. A certain quietness seemed to hang over the land, as though, indeed, sea and resisting sands were exhausted with the long struggle of the winter. Toward afternoon came some few moments of flickering sunlight. Dean sat on a wooden bar on the top of one of the dikes, and above his head a lark was singing, a little timidly, a little doubtful even, of his lonely music, but still lending a note of real life to the still gray world over which he hovered. Dean looked at the queer stone tower on its bank of shingle, and blessed the chance which had led him to purchase it. He looked inland to the little red-tile village, to the deserted quay from which all the fishing boats had been dragged high and dry along the straight line of raised dyke which formed the footpath between him and the village. As he looked, he became conscious that someone had started out from the village along the dyke top. Far away at the other end, he could see a slowly approaching figure. His heart gave a little beat. Was it a messenger, at last, coming to bring him his fate? He looked up again to where the lark was singing. It seemed, after all, so small a thing. Nearer and nearer the figure came, near enough at last, for Dean to be able to distinguish something of its outline. Then he rose to his feet with a quick, indrawn breath, a little cry of surprise, to which there was no one to listen. For this was no messenger from the village coming. It was a girl in a long gray cloak and a hat which she carried in her hand. As though the fresh salt air of the marshes was something also to her. Dean saw the neatly arranged brown hair blown into a confusion about her face. Against the empty background he recognized the poise of her head, the firm but delicate walk, the slender, swaying figure. He knew who it was that came, and it seemed to him that, from that moment, he knew two other things. His sense of proportions was suddenly shifted, enlarged, perhaps, altered certainly. He understood things which before had been mysteries to him. He understood, as though in some moment of inspiration, that riches or poverty, life, even, or death, are the incidents of life before its greatest truths. Nothing that he could think of seemed able to hold his thoughts. His heart was beating to music. The lark was singing to him a song of her own, singing in weak, tremulous notes a song of life and love and passion. He rose to his feet and went to meet her. She stopped short and faltered for a moment. He hurried on. Winifred, he exclaimed. 
she held out her hands her eyebrows were upraised her mouth was quivering her eyes were seeking his with a sort of plaintive earnestness it is true then she exclaimed you are really here i'm really here he answered and it is really you nothing else seems to matter very much and yet i would like to know why you alone of all the world should have discovered my hiding place she laughed and seemed quite unconscious of the fact that he was still holding her hands i have been ill she said i came down here to rest last night i heard in the village that you had arrived that you were here alone i knew then she continued softly what had happened i felt that i must come if it was only for a few moments it was very nice of you he said they stood side by side in a silence charged with a sort of impotent passion why had she troubled to come he wondered now that the bubble of his wealth was burst she who had held him to her cold-blooded compact who had bound him to her by as sordid a bargain as ever the mind of woman could have conceived i am glad to see you he said and yet i don't know why you did not hesitate to leave me without a word of you as soon as you saw the breakers ahead she drew a little away looking at him as though she had only half understood when i lost the bond by which i held you she said i could scarcely expect you to continue to pay i had thought it all over since until i think that i have drunk in all the shame which a woman could feel it was a hateful miserable thing but my life has been a hateful miserable thing ever since i was a child and i did long yes i did long she added fervently for something a little different you disappeared then he said slowly because you imagined naturally enough that so soon as you had lost your hold upon me i should be only too glad to free myself from our engagement of course she answered the color slowly staining her cheeks there was no doubt whatever about that only since then i have understood how great a mistake i made if things had turned out differently she continued i should never have dared to come to you to tell you this and ask for your forgiveness but as it is she added you cannot misunderstand me any longer can you i suppose not he admitted i wanted to come and tell you that i was sorry she continued softly and i wanted too to remind you that you are still young and that the loss of a fortune is not the most terrible thing in the world i heard yesterday that you were out upon salt house neck close to the quicksands you know it is never safe there with these winter tides life is not a thing to be trifled with it may seem terrible to you just now to have lost your great fortune to be once more a poor man these things after all don't count for much against the gift of life i know it sounds like humbug to hear me talk like this but they were gossiping about you in the village one man was saying that he shouldn't be at all surprised to hear that you had disappeared and to find to find she added with a little shiver your body come up the creek with the next tide you wouldn't do anything like that would you not a ghost of a chance of it he answered cheerily besides i'm not quite a pauper yet you have lost the case haven't you she asked quickly they seem to think so in the village i heard that mr sarsbury said his niece had come into a million pounds up until last night at any rate answered dean nothing was decided the judge reserved his decision then why she asked wonderingly did you come down here he drew her a little closer to him and looked into her eyes i think dear he said 
It was Providence which sent me. They walked along the sands, and for them the sun shone still, and the song of the lark was the only faint echo of a still more wonderful music. And then, as they turned back, they saw along the dike a boy riding a bicycle, a boy with a leather satchel around his waist, and the rim of whose bicycle was red. He pressed her arm. Courage, dear, he said. This is the Mercury who brings us the knowledge of our fate. In a few moments you will know whether you are to become the wife of a millionaire or a working man. If you would only believe, she murmured, how little it matters. I do believe, he answered. I came down here for one reason, to escape the shock of hearing the news before others. Now that it comes, I simply do not mind. There are greater things in the world than the little Anna gold mine. He took the telegram from the boy and opened it with firm fingers. He read it aloud without a tremor. Counsel met in judge's private room by appointment today. Have compromised with plaintiffs twenty thousand pounds. Dean threw a coin to the boy, who remounted his bicycle and rode away. Then turning to Winifred, you see, he said, you have brought me luck. I only pray, she murmured, as they turned together towards the tower, that I may bring you happiness. Dean met Mrs. Heffernan a few months afterwards, and was struck at once by her altered expression. They came face to face at the corner of a street, and both involuntarily stopped. I hope, said Dean politely, that you are making good use of my money. And I hope, she answered, laughing, that you are making more fortunes from my mind. I am doing fairly well, thank you, Dean admitted. But you know that I have a wife to keep now. And I have a husband, she answered. I'm trying to reform Stephen Heffernan. I hope that you are succeeding. On the whole, yes, she declared, smiling. We live at Streatham, and he goes into the city every day. He has bought a share in a business. We're not millionaires yet, but one never can tell. At any rate, he remarked pleasantly, to judge by your appearance, I should say, that you find it better than Rankney. Don't mention the place or anyone in it, she said with a shiver. Thank heaven. I shall never have to go back to it. Stephen is really doing very well, and half the money is still settled upon me. You have no idea, she continued, how domesticity has agreed with him. He has scarcely a vice left. It has made a lot of difference to me, returned Dean. Can't you recognize my subdued appearance? I never saw you looking so well, she answered frankly. Now I must hurry off. I'm going to call for my husband and take him to lunch. And I am going to fetch my wife for the same reason, Dean answered, smiling. The best of luck to you both. They parted in the crowd, swept away by the flood, the endless tide of passing humanity, and with a smile upon his lips, Dean went to his appointment. End of section 42 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas End of The Golden Web by E. Phillips Oppenheim